Welcome to Ebenezer Baptist Church on August 31st, 2014. Today's message is titled, From Oops to Opals, by Dr. Lyle Schrag, and is based on scripture, Psalm 103. I'm going to ask you to pray with me. And gracious Heavenly Father, as we come into this place, we realize that this is a holy place. And we come eager and expectant to be in your presence and to be able to sense that presence. And yet, Lord, it is a fearsome thing. For much like the prophet Isaiah, in coming into the presence of one who is holy, 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 we we quickly realize we are not holy, not holy, not holy, but we are human. And somehow in the reflection of that which is perfect, Lord, somehow our imperfections uh, come to the front. And Lord, like the prophet Isaiah, we, are, we would be undone were it not for the working of your spirit in our lives. So Lord, we come into this place and to worship, Lord, risking the exposure, but Lord, knowing how healing it is and praying, Lord, that you would receive our prayers of confession, but also, Lord, that we might be able to receive from you the words of absolution so that, Lord, with you, we might be able to take hold of the the granting of forgiveness and then, Lord, of a life to live with purpose and meaning and, Lord, to great effect. Help us, Lord, to be your people and to know the treasure of what it is to be your child the man or the woman that you have meant us to be from the beginning of time. This we pray in the powerful name of the one who has loved us, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. Amen. Now, I'm not quite sure why I am drawn this way, but every once in a while something will catch my eye that just I have to to check up on. And uh, just a couple weeks ago I came across a... A, a new museum. It's in the city of Ann Arbor, Michigan, and it's, and it's the home of probably the most fascinating museum on the planet. The name of the museum is the Museum of Failed Products. And at first sight, it's actually located in an, in an old uh, grocery store, and at first sight, the uh, shelves and the aisles look like any supermarket that you would ever come across, except that you will, as you go down the aisles, see that there is only one item of each of each brand on the shelves. And they're not items that you're really going to find in any real supermarket because they are failures. They are products that have been withdrawn from sale some just days after they were announced or weeks because, quite frankly, nobody wanted to buy them. It's the only place on the planet where you can find Clairol's A Touch of Yogurt Shampoo. And it's right next then to Gillette's Lotion for Oily Hair Only. And and, and there is now on the shelf, there is a a now empty bottle of Pepsi's AM Breakfast Cola. you can you can feel free to laugh at this. I mean, this is this is good stuff, you know. I, the home the museum is a home to caffeinated beer, uh, to TV dinners that are branded with the logo of the toothpaste manufacturer Colgate, 
Mm -hmm, good. Uh, they also have fortune snookies. It's a line of fortune cookies just for dogs. They have self-heating soup cans that had a tendency to explode in customers' faces. You can see why it was taken off. And they also have a detergent powder, which is simply named BARF, B-A-R-F. <laughs> and trust me, it goes downhill from there. Those were the ones I could list. It gets worse. Now, if this, message, if this museum has a central message, it is that failure isn't a rarity. Quite frankly, it's the norm. For every insanely successful product, such as the iPhone or maybe the Big Mac, there is a whole galaxy of ideas that only a mother could truly love. And, and what's true of human invention is just a reflection of what is true in human reality. You see, the legacy of the human race is that failure is not a rarity. It is, in fact, a norm. Let's be honest about it. Each one of us could probably post our own museum of failure and filled with all the mistakes and blunders that we've carried with us and each one of those things being a lasting tribute to the truth of the human condition. Nobody is perfect. And there are times when we find maybe ourselves wandering down the aisles of our own personal museum in our memories and we have to wonder, what on earth was I thinking? But even more, where do I go from here? And how on earth can I move forward in life with this on my record? Now, if you have your Bible with you, I would invite you this morning to turn to Psalm 103. For there, King David offers a word of encouragement and a very practical perspective that we had better take to heart. Psalm 103. Now you know that I've been preaching on the Psalms. I've been able to point to some sort of introduction in some of the other psalms that we've looked at that will set the stage for the thoughts. But here, when you turn to Psalm 103, you will find there is nothing. There's no historical note. There are no instructions. There are no selahs. There are no alamos. There are no mass skills. There is just a simple title. Psalm 103, Psalm of David. Now, Old Testament scholars will look at this and say, well, because it isn't as personal or necessarily as intense as the other psalms, uh, this is more general and probably should be taken as a hymn, which is a tad bit different than a psalm. You see, a psalm is technically a personal testimony, the reflection of one life that allows you to listen and learn, but to some degree from an arm's length because it is something that belongs to someone else for the first. A hymn, on the other hand, uh, may sound like a personal ten testimony, but it is intended to become your personal testimony. You, you can make it your very own. It is not owned solely by one writer. It belongs to everyone who can sing it. And David here holds out his hand and he says, this psalm needs a choir. And so as I preach, I know I'm preaching to the choir because this belongs to you and to me. We join in. This becomes our voice. And so look at it as it begins. It begins with a reality check. Facing the facts of who we are and who God is. Verses 1 and verse 2. And the last breath of verse 22 are all the same. Bless the Lord, O my soul. 
Now that is that, that sets the stage for the psalm because what you have in that phrase at the beginning and at the end are two characters who stand faced off with one another. The Lord and my soul. And they start with an encouragement for my soul to get it together so that what? All that is within me might then bless his holy name. And so the question becomes, how does my soul get it together? It does so by facing the reality of life. Look at verse 2. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits, which opens the door to reality. And in verse 3, there is forgiveness for all, all of your sins and healing for all of your diseases. Verse 4, and redemption from your, for, of your life from the pit. So that in verse 4, we can be crowned with love and compassion. Verse 5, satisfied with what is good and renewed with youth, just like the eagle. I want to pause there for just a moment with me and, and, and then linger on the words that belong just to the human side of that equation as it stands without God. Humanity is standing alone, uh, and in those verses it is marked by three things. Sin, disease, and the pits. That's what we bring to the equation. Add all of those things together, and what you do, you have fault lines that run right through every single human on this planet, every single one of us, every single one of you, and I will confess, me as well. Sin, disease, and the pits. Sin, or some of you may have it translated, iniquity. Is anyone exempt from iniquity or sin? No, as the Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Disease, again, are any of us exempt from disease? No. How about the pits? Well, it's fair for me to say that that is familiar territory for us all at some point in time. Now, I don't want to make too much of this, but as I was studying the psalm, I kept cycling those three words through my mind, and I could not help but see a pattern there. Sin. We do something wrong, or we don't do the right thing, and what happens? What is the consequence? Disease. We get hurt badly. And the result? The pit. We've dug a hole for ourselves so low that we cannot get out. And the reality of our life and the legacy of our failures and why every single one of us is there at that point is brings us to the point of saying we need a redeemer. But while that's the reality of the one character on the stage, our soul, who we are, my soul, your soul, there is another character on the stage who is possessed of an equally comprehensive reality. And in those verses, you will see him there. He is the Lord. And notice what he does. He forgives, he heals, and he redeems. Now, why would he do that? How is it that he is able to do that? And the answer of the psalm is that it is in his nature to do that. If you were to outline this psalm, there are two primary attributes of God that, that are on full display here. From verses 6 through 14, he is described as a gentle father caring for a wayward family. And in verses 19 through 22, he is the undisputed king 
who is guiding the full cycles of life in his kingdom. And all of the actions that are described in these verses flow from the definition of his character, which stands in two parts. Gracious Father, full King. And, the, his, and, and, and consistent to that reality, all of his actions show that he is a father who has compassion on his children. And in verses 19, uh, uh, the natural expression of a Lord who has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom then rules over all. Now, this is a, this is a powerful image that quite frankly has fixed itself in my heart and has in fact become part of my routine in prayer. Over, over time, you find that you, you become familiar with kind of standard phrases, and, and some of you may have detected that I, I am stuck in a particular formula with my prayers that begins with a particular address. I, I cannot help it, but when I start pray, I say, Gracious Heavenly Father. Have you heard me say that? I, I still remember uh, one time a member of a former church was saying that she was listening to a tape and it began by saying, Gracious Heavenly Father, and she told me, I knew it was you. Because that's the way you talk. Gracious Heavenly Father. It has become so familiar. And all of the elements in that dress are, are, are woven really into the psalm. Because here you see he was heavenly, the ultimate ruler over all of creation with a throne that is established in the heavens. But he is not so far removed that even the most simple of his subjects, you and me, with all of our foibles and all of our failures, might also find him to be a caring father, a heavenly father. And, and with the combination of those two attributes, there is only one that qualifies to apply it, and that is grace that comes into our lives. Gracious Heavenly Father. That's the greater reality that is cemented in this psalm, which then paves a path for us to find a way to be able to move on with our lives. Or, as I have it on your sermon outline, take the necessary steps on the road to recovery that gets us past our failures. And what might those steps be? Well, the first is found right away in verse 1. In light of your personal reality check, I have it on your outline there, make your reaction your responsibility. Listen to verse 2. It says, Praise the Lord, O my soul, and all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Now this is a special literary device that every single one of us is capable of and Truth be told, probably do every day. It's called talking to yourself. How many of you talk to yourselves? Yeah, okay. I do it all the time. I was sitting at the stoplight the other day, and I was. And the lady pulled up next to me, and she looked over at me with this quizzical look, and I said, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to myself. I, we talk to ourselves. It's self-talk. And here, it's as if David has reached down inside into the soul and he's pulled it out and he takes it in his hand and he says, okay, soul, listen up. Pay attention. Bless the Lord. Among everything else you want to do, I'm giving you instructions right now. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Let everything that is in me bless his holy name. Contrast to what we normally tend to do. The first thing most of us do in the face of our failures is to, in fact, 
search for someone else to blame. Someone else is at fault. I'm just a victim. But as Shakespeare put it himself, the fault lies not in the stars, but where? In ourselves. And the quicker we own up to the reality that we are weak, that we are prone to iniquity, disease, and the pits, the sooner we can move on. And here, David takes charge of his soul and provides a prime example of accepting personal responsibility and then deliberately issuing orders. Praise the Lord. The fact is, where we, where we choose to place our focus will, in fact, determine the condition of our soul. Whether we become bitter or moody or angry or defeated in the face of our life and our legacy or or whether we will soften and humble and then grow. Your reaction to life is your responsibility, step one. And that sets up the stage then for step two. Don't seek blame, but lay claim to God's grace. Does that sound poetic? I've worked hard on that one, okay? Now before you, I, I read these verses, let me ask a question. In light of personal failure, how do you see yourself? When you look at yourself in the mirror, having, having fouled up, do you see a great big L tattooed on your forehead? That's one step past finding others to blame. You're now looking at yourself. And you know you are skilled enough to blame yourself all by yourself. And in these verses, David looks into the mirror and he finds two images reflected back. Listen to as I, I read in verse 4. Praise the Lord who redeems your life from the pits and crowns you with love and compassion. No well, but a crown. Verse 5, has satisfied your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. You've got wings, not an L. And the Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He makes his ways, makes known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. I have to tell you, one of the things that, that attracted me, probably the, the greatest thing that attracted me to Jesus Christ was the promise that I could begin life all over again with a second birth and a new beginning. And because of Jesus Christ, it wasn't a, a do-over, but it was an extreme makeover. And the one verse that illustrated my conversion any more than any other was found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where if anyone is in Christ, what? He is a new creature. And the old is gone, as far away as the east is from the west. And what is happening? The new is coming. And the lesson behind all of this taught me to look at myself in a completely different light. And in the mirror, see and not, not an old Lyle defined by failure, but a new Lyle who is alive in Jesus Christ. A new creature is able to look in the mirror and then see the Lord who is at work within. The Lord who, well, look at the list. 
is one who pardons iniquities. He heals diseases. He redeems life. He bestows honor with a crown of loving kindness and compassion. He satisfies life. He renews strength. He forgives sin. Even more, he removes it as far as the east is from the west. Are you such a new creature yourself? Connect the dots. In Jesus Christ, you are. Step number one. Facing reality opens to step number two. And before step number one, you couldn't see beyond yourself. You were fixated on your failure so that you had to deliberately refocus your attention in order to be able to see the grace of God staring you right in the face. And that makes all the difference in your life. Take step one, and in step two, then you see yourself as you are in concert with God, as the song says, in the light of his glory and grace. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things on earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. When you see yourself through God's eyes, pardoned, healed, redeemed, honored, satisfied, renewed, and clearly forgiven, then you are ready for step three. Step three, which is... Don't give up. Instead, get busy. Lowering the white flag of, of surrender, you now are in a position to gird up your loins. That sounds scriptural, doesn't it? Listen carefully to verse 14. He knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like the flower in the field. But when the wind blows over it, it is gone, and the place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him, and his righteousness is with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. When David here talks about dust and grass withering away, he's telling us something that every single one of us will discover at some point in time. On our own, we really are but dust. No matter how hard we try to establish our own immortality through things like a job or other people or a special healthy diet, the fact remains we are but dust. I don't know how many times I have heard it as a pastor when I've come to a hospital after somebody has been diagnosed with some life-threatening condition where they looked at me and they said, I don't understand it. I, I, I ate all of the right foods. I took the right vitamins. I exercised. I didn't smoke. I didn't do drugs. I didn't do anything like that. But now I have this. It's just not fair. But we are but dust. And were we to base our security on insecure objects, we are bound to be disappointed and be tempted to toss into the towel and just give up. But here the invitation is to the one and only relationship that promises security that endures. Do you see the promise in verse 19? He's the one who's got the throne in heaven and a kingdom that rules over all, and he is not likely to disappoint. If in verse 13, he is a father who knows you better than you know yourself, in verse 19, he is a king you can count on. So get busy. He's got a plan laid out for you, as it says in verse 21, to do his will as you can. 
Step one, take personal responsibility. Step two, lay claim to his grace so that with confidence in step three, you can complete the journey that will take you to step four. Take your place in his presence. Look at verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. So praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere. Praise the Lord, O my soul. If in step two you get a new perspective by looking in the mirror and seeing yourself in full partnership with God, here an invitation is made for you now to look around yourself and see where you fit in the cosmic scheme of things. And what you find is that you have your place with angels, saints of all the angels, ages, the heavenly hosts, and the majesty of all creation. You are standing shoulder and shoulder together with them all. You have your place with all of them. And as a, with that place, you have a role that is as dignified as any one of those others. So praise the Lord, O oh my soul. My voice belongs to this chorus. This chorus that embraces angels and heavenly beings. My voice has a place in this choir, and so does yours. What an indescribable dignity we possess. And what began as a reflection on the reality of life at the beginning of the psalm, a showcase of futility, iniquity, disease, and the pits, you find now ends up on the mountain time, mountaintop where there, by the grace of God, we end up sparkling and shining into eternal. And sparkle we do. A few years ago, I was delighted by an illustration that came in a book called Splashes of Joy in the Cesspools of Life. Again, I don't know why I'm attracted to things like that, but I do. You talk about sparkling from the pits, the cesspools of life. Listen to the image that was painted as I read it. I, 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 it's an image on the screen that I put up there for you and might now explain a little bit of my title up from the message, From Oops to Opals. For the image that you have on the screen, I don't know if you can see, but it is a picture of opals themselves. And as I read this, take it to heart. She's a diamond in the rough is a familiar way of saying that somebody has the potential to become far more than they are right now. But I believe that we are much more like opals than diamonds. Did you know that an opal is made of desert dust, sand and silica, which has been compressed together over years and owes its beauty not to its perfection, but instead to its defects. The opal is a stone with a broken heart. It is full of minute fissures that allow air inside, and then the air refracts the light. As a result, the opal has such lovely hues that the stone is called the lamp of fire because the breath of the Lord is in it. An opal will lose its luster if it is kept in a cold, dark place. It'll just look like a stone. 
But when the luster is but the luster is restored when it is held in a warm hand, and when light shines on it. In so many ways, we can compare the opal to ourselves. It is when we are warmed by God's love that we take on color and brilliance. It is when we are broken inside ourselves through our defects that we can give back then the lovely hues of his light to others. That is an act of grace. It is then that the lamp of the temple can burn brightly within us and not flicker or go out. There will be times when we lose the luster in our lives, and it is vital to know how to restore it. When silver and brass get tarnished, well, we get out the tarnish remover and do some rubbing. What can we do when, when we need to get back the shine in our own lives? Should we read to be opals? We can count our blessings and, and, and name them one by one. And when we count our blessings, that lamp of God's flame burns higher once again. Without God's touch in our lives, his work within us to will and to do his good pleasure, there is no sparkle, there is no joy. But when we allow him to work within us, when we feel his hand upon us, we are no longer hidden treasures. We become sparkling jewels that beautify his kingdom. So bless the Lord, O oh my soul. And let all that is within me bless his holy name. What a wonderful prayer. And what a powerful prayer for us to take into our heart and our life where we willingly and obediently allow him to, as the Savior, as the author says, allow him to work within us and feel his hand upon us. The hand of the one who loved us and gave himself for us, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. So I'm going to ask you to close with this prayer and pray it even within yourself. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. And let all that is within me bless your holy name. Lord, keep us ever mindful of the love that you have for us and the work you have done within us and, Lord, the life that you pour out before us. And here, in obedience to your claim in our lives, we give ourselves to you. Lord, make us shine, I pray, by the glory of your grace and by the power of your spirit. This I pray in the wonderful name of the one who loved us and gave himself for us, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. Amen.